0: Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. The confusion stops here. I am uh, your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And speaking of confusion, this week, VMPR received what I refer to as a nasty gram over my comments um, about Garabendal in last week's program. So today, uh, I'm going to take an even closer look at Garabendal, and later on, we're going to answer the question, uh, what exactly constitutes an officially approved Marian apparition because there's a lot of people who are uh, apparently confused about what that is. Also, going to have a, a medieval mentality segment later, and um, uh, look look at why you should have a rule of life. You know, just like a like a medieval monk had a rule of life, you should have one as well. But uh, to begin, rather than uh, reading the gospel from this Sunday's uh, mass as usual. I, I would like instead to consider the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, that's uh, taken from Luke 16 verses 19 through 31, where Jesus, uh, wishing to show the evil effects of riches when misused and the advantages of poverty when born with patience, said the following, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who lay at the rich man's gate full of sores. He desired to be filled with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, but no one did give him. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now it came to pass that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. But the rich man also died, and he was buried in hell. And lifting up his eyes when he was in torments, he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said to him, Son, remember that thou didst receive good things in thy lifetime and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is fixed a great chaos, so that they who would pass from hence to you cannot, nor from thence to hither. Thereupon Dives said, Then, Father, I beseech thee that thou wouldst send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torments. But Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will do penance. Abraham said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rise from the dead. So in this parable, Jesus gives us an inkling of our future state, both for our consolation and as a warning. After this life, there is an afterlife, a life where everything is quite different from what it is on earth. Lazarus was poor and despised and racked with pain and hunger while he was on the earth. But when he died, angels carried his soul to the limbo of the fathers, to Abraham's bosom, the abode of the just, where he received consolation and from which, when our Lord ascended into heaven, He passed into everlasting glory. On the other hand, the rich man, when on earth, led what was apparently a wonderful life. He he was esteemed, honored, surrounded by flatterers, waited on by servants, uh, clad in costly clothes, and and had a luxurious feast every day. But all this splendor lasted only a short time, and then he died and was lost forever. And, you know, still suffering the unspeakable torments of hell. Now, since this is a parable, uh, Deves, the rich man, and Lazarus are, are typical characters uh, uh, rather than, than actual persons, right? I mean, presumably. But there are important truths contained in this parable, as in all parables, like, you know, the good Samaritan and, and so on. First off, this parable gives us a description of hell, that hell's real, that it's a place of torment in which the soul is completely buried, completely enclosed, and the torment is caused by a supernatural fire that's kindled, kindled by the justice of God. And there is therefore no relief, no hope for the lost soul. It's separated from the abode of the just by a great chaos. It can never get to them and must remain forever in the torment of hell. Hence Dante's Inferno, right? The poet places a sign above the entrance to hell, abandon hope all ye who enter here. Tradition tells us that the torments of hell correspond to the vices uh, of the lost soul. So uh, an unbelievable thirst was the principal torment of uh, the rich man who was a glutton. Uh, He he thought that one little drop of water such as could hang from the tip of a man's finger uh, would be a relief, but he couldn't get even that. The rich man who had so sinned by his gluttony was now consumed by an everlasting thirst the one who had raised Lazarus, refused Lazarus even the crumbs from his table, now begged to no avail for one little drop of water to cool his burning tongue. That's a vivid picture. And it's interesting that Jesus did not say that, that the rich man committed any sins which the world would, be con, would consider great ones. He might truly have said to himself, I've deceived no man. I, I, I've never taken anyone's life. I've never sworn falsely. I'm not a miser. I'm I'm very, I'm very liberal. I I circulate my money freely and and enjoy the use of it. And I'm praised by my friends uh, for my liberality. And all of that would be true. And yet he was damned. And why? Because he was a proud man and a decadent man and religion didn't matter to him. His only thought was to lead a pleasant life. He led a life without, without prayer, without the fear of hell or the desire of heaven a life without grace and without God. It sounds like a lot of people these days, doesn't it? Now let me ask you, can such a life be rewarded with everlasting communion with God? Well, no. I mean, the obvious and inevitable sequel to such a life can only be found in hell, which is to say in eternal separation from God. We make the choice here. You know, living his life away from God, the rich man sinned, firstly, by unbelief. Uh, uh, Obviously, he and his brothers um, uh, didn't believe very much, if at all, in the immortality of the soul or in what God had revealed to man by Moses and the prophets, which is to say the necessity of doing penance and and the hope of a promised redeemer. He sinned, secondly, by pride. See, it, it wasn't avarice that made him refuse to help uh, poor Lazarus, who, who he walked past every day of his life without a second look. And it was pride that made him despise the poor man. It was pride that made him hard-hearted and unloving. Uh, it, it, pride, that, that, uh, that self-love that then developed into selfishness. And then he sinned, uh, as the thing tells us, for, by, by gluttony, eating and drinking, a luxurious feast, luxurious banquets every day. And for which reason, he was traditionally known as the rich glutton. So the everlasting reward of Lazarus and the everlasting punishment of dives teach us to know the justice of God. That, that God's justice uh, is also shown in his temporal reward of the rich man while on earth for what little good he had done. You know, perhaps in his earlier days, Deves had, had sometimes prayed or, or given an offering to the temple. And because God, in his omniscience, knew that this man would remain impenitent to the end and would go to hell, he gave him his reward on earth. Whereas, on the other hand, Lazarus, you know, probably committed sins in in his youth, but then repented of them, and by his misery on earth made satisfaction for them and, and suffered his temporal punishment in that way, so that when he died, he was taken, you know, directly into the abode of the just, Point is, nothing good is left unrewarded and nothing that is sinful is left unpunished. That's the justice of God. The, the fate of the rich man ought to serve as a grave warning to the rich uh, to to make you know to, to not forget God or, or the care of souls and to use their riches, um, make right use of their riches, especially by alms deeds. And, and the everlasting reward of Lazarus ought to bring consolation to the poor and suffering And teach them not to murmur or lose courage, but to endure everything in patience and in resignation, fixing their hope on God and his everlasting riches. Blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, applies to us all. But here's the main point I wanted to make. Uh, Jesus says, he who will not believe the teachers appointed by God, that's Moses and the prophets under the old law and the church under the new would not believe even if one rose from the dead and came to preach to him. You remember how another Lazarus was called back from the grave by our Lord, and Christ himself rose from the dead, and yet the majority of his people still refused to believe. They have Moses and the prophets. What does that mean for us today? The rich man and his brothers had Moses and the prophets. We have the gospel. God became man to suffer and die for your sins. On the Holy Cross, he gave you the Blessed Virgin Mary to be your mother and model. He established the Catholic Church to communicate to you the graces he won on the Holy Cross through the sacraments that he instituted. Is that not enough? What does Scripture say? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel to you other than the one we proclaim to you, let him be anathema. And that's no nonsense. And why do I bring that up? Well, when we come back, I'm going to share some hard truths about the topic that I broached last week, namely the alleged apparitions at Garabandal, and share with you why I find it so distressing that some people still believe in the so-called great warning or the illumination of conscience, which is not a part of the deposit of faith, and which the church has concluded was not an authentic supernatural message. All right? All right. So put on your seatbelt, we're going to go there, we're going to go there when we come back with uh, more No Nonsense Catholic right after this. So stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and we will return after these messages. Okay, the other day, Virgin Most Powerful received a nasty gram with the subject line attack on divine mercy. And this email was, in fact, an attack on yours truly. It began, Dear Terry and Jesse, I love your radio show and watch you guys regularly on YouTube. Thank you for everything you do. Nice sentiments, although, as you already know, the Terry and Jesse show was removed from YouTube some years ago. But whatever. He goes on to say he's the founder of a Catholic lay apostolate to spread devotion to the Holy Face and teach many of the other great devotions, including the Divine Mercy revelations to St. Faustina. You can imagine my shock when I came across your video on YouTube titled, Is Divine Mercy Legitimate? Why on earth would you allow such a title? And, and by the way, he's reacting to a clip um, from last week's No Nonsense Catholic that the boys in the office uploaded to our YouTube channel, Full Sheen Ahead. Like and subscribe. Anyway, the, the author of this email maintains, quote, the video undermines this devotion, that is divine mercy, by sowing doubt. Now, my initial reaction was, okay, maybe this fellow is just reacting to the title. I mean, that happens all the time on social media, where people will go on, on some tirade, have a hissy fit over the title of an article without ever, you know, ever you know, reading the contents. Uh, but based on his, the comment that follows, it seems that he did watch at least some of the clip, uh, now the title that he so objects to is um, from the last week's show: "Is Divine Mercy legitimate?" Now that was taken directly, word for word, from an actual question received from an actual listener. Answering such questions is what we do uh, at, at you know it's what we do here. And as you may know, I had promoted the Divine Mercy uh, the week before, but failed to address the 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 silly but. Um, uh, but but unfortunately real contention among some catholics that the, the divine mercy is not legitimate and and somebody who was confused asked you know and and I cleared it up needless to say I didn't attack the divine mercy but instead offered a vigorous defense refuting uh the the uh, um, attack on the devotion in general and divine mercy sunday in particular so my first thought was if he's really just that concerned about the title Well, then, with apologies to Shakespeare, the listener doth protest too much, methinks. But then I read the next sentence. He, that is me, goes on to attack Garabendal, calling it nonsense, and erroneously states, quote, if the church concludes that an apparition is false, as in the case of Garabendal, unquote, the church has not declared Garabendal as false. The church is still discerning. This is what he wrote to us. Okay. Garabandal again. And it was suddenly clear to me which other devotion he founded an apostolate to promote and likely why he chose not to mention the name of his apostolate. Um, But in any event, the statement, the church has not declared Garabandal false, the church is still discerning, is in fact demonstrably false. So first, a little background. Now, for those of you who are mercifully unaware of Garabendal, the claim is that apparitions of St. Michael the Archangel and the Blessed Virgin Mary allegedly occurred from 1961 to 1965 to four young schoolgirls, initially ages 11 and 12, in the rural village of San Sebastian de Garabendal in the Diocese of Santander in Spain. There were two alleged messages attributed to the Blessed Virgin, of which the first was just, you know, typical boilerplate assertions a call for prayer and sacrifice, uh, Eucharistic devotion, veneration to Our Lady in traditional ways. In fact, uh, they originally referred to her as Our Lady of Mount Carmel of Garibendal, uh, and that God is offended by our sins. Okay. As the former Bishop of Santander, Eugenio Batia, said, they simply repeat the common doctrine of the Church in these matters. Now, that was the message of 1961. The 1965 message was uh, more controversial in that uh, they claimed Mary had said, many cardinals, bishops, and priests are following the road to perdition, and with them they are taking many more souls. Uh, Now you can see uh, why certain people would have an affinity (laughs) with this sentiment, Um, but as a student of history, I can tell you that there has hardly ever been a time in the church uh, when this assertion was not being made. She also allegedly said, ever less importance is being given to the Holy Eucharist. And I can understand also how this resonates with people, because we can see it. But that's the point. We can see it. Catholics have been making this very observation for decades without any, you know, need of any pretended messages from heaven. And the so-called visionaries also forecast a warning, a miracle, and a punishment that are, you know, have not transpired. Now, this concerns the alleged great warning or illumination of conscience that I called nonsense last week. But allow me to say that I am in good company. All the bishops of Santander, who have the uh, primary jurisdiction in this matter, all have spoken with one voice regarding Garabendal and concluded that nothing supernatural took place. In 1967, Bishop Montese of Santander declared, there was no apparition either of the Blessed Virgin or of St. Michael the Archangel or of any other celestial personage. There was no message. All the phenomena which occurred have a natural explanation, unquote. Now, in the face of that conclusion, the devotees of Garibandol falsely claimed that they didn't have to accept the bishop's declaration because according well, according to their materials, pronouncements on the authenticity of Garibandol was entirely in the hands of the Holy Office, the the Congregation uh, for the Doctrine of the Faith. Although, according to the Church, competence in such matters rests with the local bishop. But in this case, the, the, the CDF did put an end to their claim once and for all. On May 10, 1969, the congregation issued a declaration giving, quote, full support to Bishop Montez, and stating that he, quote, acted correctly in this matter and in full accord with his authority, unquote. And yet, The promoters of Garibandol disingenuously continue to to promote the the devotion as if Rome had not spoken. In fact, they continue to claim the contrary. And, And since the very early days have made the assertion that the visionary, the main visionary, Conchito Gonzalez, had an audience with Pope Paul VI and received his special blessing. And that claim was promoted in a pamphlet circulated by the Garibandol Center of New York. Well, the bad news is that the claim, indeed the pamphlet itself, pamphlet itself, were also specifically refuted as false by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith in 1969. And yet people today still repeat the false claims and still promote the devotion on the dishonest assertion that the church is still discerning. really. In the nineteen nineties, um, as reported at that time by EWTN News, then Bishop of Santander, Jose Villaplana, uh, Villa sorry, was asked why he did not issue a new statement on Garibandol just to clear things up. And he pointed out that all the bishops of the diocese from nineteen sixty one through nineteen seventy uh, made the same assertion, right, that there was no supernatural character to the so called apparitions. Therefore, he said he did not find it necessary to reiterate this in a new declaration because it was only give undue publicity to something which was settled 20 years earlier. In other words, he said, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. And it's interesting that he specifically talks about the period from 1961 to 1970. Um, You know, the, the, the last of the messages came in 1965. Well, obviously, the 1969 declaration from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith was not met with docility by the promoters of Garam Bendall, including even some clergy. An American prelate, Archbishop Hainan of New Orleans, expressed his doubts to the congregation and received a personal reply from Cardinal Sepper, who was prefect of the CDF, and it's dated April 21, 1970, which is the the crucial date. What does it say? Quote, The Holy See has always held that the conclusions and dispositions of the Bishop of Santander were sufficiently secure guidelines for the Christian people and indication for the bishops in order to dissuade people from participating in pilgrimages and other acts of devotions that are based on claims connected with or founded on the presumed apparitions and messages of Garibandal. In order to reply to certain doubts that you expressed in your letter, this sacred congregation wishes to assert that the Holy See has never approved, even indirectly, the Garibandal movement, that it has never encouraged or blessed Garibandal promoters or centers. Rather, the Holy See deplores the fact that certain persons and institutions persist in fomenting the movement in obvious contradiction with the dispositions of ecclesiastical authority and thus disseminate confusion among the people, especially among the simple and defenseless. Which, of course, is the accusation made against me for defending the divine mercy. But really, my sin was for calling a spade a spade on Garibandol. As recently as October of last year, in response to an unauthorized Garibandol event in uh, in Madrid, the current Bishop of Santander, Manuel Sanchez Monge, said, my position is like that of my predecessor's, my position, like that of my predecessors, is that Rome's assessment remains valid. Rome's assessment. Rome has spoken on Garibandal. It is a lie to say otherwise, and yet it persists. I, I'm sure many people who are devotees of, of Garibandal are not aware of the things that I've shared with you, but they are a matter of record. You know, the fellow that sent us the mas- nasty closed his letter to Terry and Jesse saying, I pray you are more careful in future about who you allow on your radio show, because so many of us have had poor catechesis and are easily influenced by others. <laughs> no kidding. And just FYI, addressing these emails on the air was a prudential decision that I did not make in a vacuum. Terry Barber is well aware of how I feel about Dahl and gave me his assurance that, uh, you know, addressing it was within our editorial policy. Now, this fellow's final word to Terry and Jesse was, quote, please protect us from those who sow doubt and confusion. Well, that is the stated purpose of No Nonsense Catholic. The confusion stops here. And friend, I stand with the church when I say that I too deplore those who disseminate confusion among people, especially among the simple and defenseless, especially, which they do precisely by promoting Garib and And that's no nonsense. And, and hey, let me say, if you have been those who are among, or if you've been among those, or know people who are among those who have been devoted to Garib and you're going to want to stay tuned for the next segment. Because when we come back, I will explain just what it is that constitutes an approved Marian apparition so that you can, you know, tell one from another. And we'll talk about who it is that has authority in the church to give such approval, okay? And we're going to go directly to document from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith and the precedent set at the Council of Trent, okay? This isn't new. It isn't novel. But there's a really excellent chance that you've never heard it before. And there is especially an excellent chance that you have never heard that there's no such thing as a Vatican-approved apparition. Ooh, let that sink in while we're waiting for the next segment. Uh, Matthew Arnold here, your host for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic. And we will be back right after this with more on what constitutes a Marian apparition, who has the authority to approve them, and what the reaction of the faithful must be. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, Matthew Arnold for VMPR Radio. Uh, we were talking about <clears throat> Dahl and the purported uh, messages regarding the uh, so-called Great Warning or Illumination of Conscience. <clears throat> and for those of you that don't know, it's essentially the claim that shortly before the end times, everyone, without exception, every man, woman, and child, will personally experience an awareness of their own sinfulness, be given the sure knowledge— of where they would spend eternity if they were to die at that moment. And each person will be alone before God in what amounts to a kind of wake-up call for every human being, uh, you know, before the end comes. Obviously, the illumination of conscience is not part of the gospel. It is not in the deposit of faith. And I would hasten to add that no authentic apparition ever adds to or takes anything away from the gospel. Scripture, on, on the other hand, including our Lord himself, uh, warns us that there's going to be false prophets and false miracles and false gospels. Okay? That's the great warning. That's the thing that should illuminate your conscience. Not some, not some alleged uh, uh, event before, before the end times. And let me, let me remind you just quickly that everyone who has ever died, all the saints, all your loved ones, for example, they all died without this so called illumination of conscience. But but you'll definitely experience it though. Right? Why? Cause well, because you know, because God cares more about this generation than any that's ever come before? Uh, you know, see, I don't think so. I think Christians from the first century to the twenty first all have the same gospel. You know, you know, we, we, we are <clears throat> all to live with the knowledge that we must be prepared for Christ's return. God gives us all, without exception, access to the graces that we need to be saved. It's up to us to cooperate with him. You know, I I mean, we hold out the hope for salvation of every person uh, because they're in the hands of God. We all of us have the same opportunity to know, love, and serve God in this life and be happy with him forever in the next. Right? That's the gospel. That's no nonsense. And you might ask why I'm so adamant about this business of whether or not some relatively obscure Marian apparition is really approved. Well, you know, especially, uh, considering that even approved Marian apparitions are, you know, can support a fringe element and, uh, you know, are not requisite for our salvation to begin with. Also, you know, th- on that illumination of conscience, golly, even if I was wrong and I'm not, but even if I were, um, what difference would it make if God's going to give every man, woman, and child a wake-up call, even if they don't know the gospel, even if they, even if they're atheists, even if they live away from God? If everybody's going to get it anyway, what what matter if you prepared for it or not? What why you know what is it about the the, the followers of Garibaldi that they that they get to be the, the carriers of this of this secret knowledge? Okay, I've been dealing with confusion regarding. Marian apparitions for years, although mostly in in the other direction, that is, uh, people refusing to believe in an apparition that has been approved, okay, that really is approved. Uh, But but there's no just cause for this confusion, because good information on official church policy is more readily available than any time in history. And unfortunately, some people have misconceptions about the way things work in the church, and others, for reasons of their own, uh, purposely misrepresent them. So I wanna take a moment to clarify what the church actually holds in this regard. First things first, what is a Marian apparition? Well, a Marian apparition is a reported supernatural occurrence, uh, or appearance rather, by Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's that's a Marian apparition. And as I mentioned last week, according to Catholic teaching, uh, the faithful are free to accept or reject private revelations even before the church is spoken so long as nothing in the messages or other phenomena is contrary to faith and morals, right? so long as it doesn't present some other gospel. But once the church authority has declared an apparition worthy of belief, the faithful must respect that decision and likewise respect those who choose to incorporate such approved apparitions into their own devotional life. So you don't have to be devoted to Our Lady of Fatima, for instance, but you have to respect people who are. Now, on the other hand, if the church concludes that an apparition is false, then the faithful must be ready and willing to abandon it. Now, in promoting devotion to uh, Our Lady under the title Our Lady of Good Success, I I always make reference to the fact that her apparition and messages to Mother Mariana uh, have enjoyed the approbation of every bishop of Quito, Ecuador from 1611 to the current archbishop today. And yet I often count, encounter the objection, well, what does the Vatican say? Is this approved by the Vatican? You know, show me where the Pope has ever endorsed this. Show, show this to me on the Vatican website. And, and I believe that these challenges are primarily fueled by the desire to respect the authority of the church. And that's a good thing. Unfortunately, they betray an ignorance of the way the church exercises that authority and grants uh, such approval. You know, sometimes well-meaning Catholics try to make a false distinction between apparitions that are Vatican-approved and those that are not. You'll even you'll see lists of them uh, on, on uh, you, uh, um, the Internet. You know, these are the Vatican-approved apparitions, and these are the ones that have only been approved by the local bishop, okay? Uh, it's a distinction without a difference because the local ordinary has primary jurisdiction in these matters, and because according to the Church the local ordinary, is the bishop of competence, quote-unquote. And and yet people still ask, well, which ones are Vatican approved Strictly speaking, read my lips, the answer to that question is none of them. Believe it or not, you can search, you can read until your eyes bleed, and you will not find a document that declares Pope so-and-so grants official approval to apparition X, Y, or Z. The current norms, now, it's been in place since the Council of Trent, but, but the, the current norms uh, uh, governing uh, Catholic bishops in, in discerning claims about private revelations and, and Marian apparitions uh, was set forth in 1978 in a document from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, henceforth the CDF, called Normae Congregationis. And this document specifically lays out the manner of discernment and which authorities are competent to carry out such discernment. According to the Norma Congregationis, the only formal mechanism for the Holy See's approval of a Marian apparition would be the Pope approving an apparition that occurred in the Diocese of Rome. Why? Because in Rome, the Pope is the Bishop of Competence. He's the local ordinary. Uh, However, because of the Pope's supreme jurisdiction... Uh, he could theoretically overrule some other local ordinary and approve an apparition against his his judgment against his will, but let me tell you that in our in our history neither one of these things has ever happened. The Pope's never approved uh, uh, an apparition in Rome, nor has he ever uh, uh, overruled uh, uh, the the judgment of a local bishop. Right? Okay. Never approved a Marian apparition himself. Never overturned you know, much less uh, another bishop. So even in cases where the congregation of the doctrine of the faith would cooperate with an investigation and yield a positive result, all right, if they say, yep, absolutely, the consequent approval doesn't derive its authority from the Vatican, from the Holy See, from the congregation, it derives its authority from the local bishop. You know, those apparitions that claim the approval of the Holy See are making those claims Uh, based on what you would call informal indicators of endorsement, okay? Uh, The strongest indicator would be that uh, for the Holy See to promote the liturgical celebration of a private devotion outside of the particular diocese in which it occurred. So in other words, uh, you know, where where the local ordinary would not have jurisdiction. So Our Lady of Lourdes, uh, Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Guadalupe come to mind, because they are all included in the universal Roman liturgical calendar. But others, like Our Lady of Knock, uh, which is on the Roman calendar for all of Ireland, or Our Lady of La Salette, which is on the calendar for all of France, those have similar approval. The point is that, strictly speaking, these apparitions are not more approved or or more legitimate than any other locally approved Marian apparition. They simply enjoy a, a more widespread veneration, right? More people know about it. So according to the norms of the Catholic Church, which have have been in effect not just since 1978, but since the Council of Trent, the responsibility of evaluating the merits of any purported apparition falls to the bishop of the territory in which the alleged events occurred. If, or which the events allegedly occurred, I guess I should say. If, after an investigation, he determines that the apparition constitutes an authentic supernatural appearance of the Blessed Virgin Mary, pardon me, then that uh, apparition is considered approved for the whole church on his authority, okay? Unless uh, such time as one of his successors or, you know, the Pope in Rome were to contradict his decision, which, as I said before, has never happened. Now, let's consider the the alleged apparitions at Garabendal. It was investigated by the local ordinary and the Holy See with the conclusion that there was no apparition. No message, no approval of the Church. Every bishop of Santander from 1961 up to the current bishop have upheld that decision. If you conclude from this that the Church is still still discerning, then words have no meaning. Obviously, the assertion by the bishops and the Vatican that there was no apparition of the Blessed Virgin or St. Michael the Archangel, and that there was no message, does not mean uh, we're still thinking about it, or we're still considering it. Right, That attitude by the way, the attitude that puts in, uh, would put a question mark where the church has placed a period puts you in the same camp as people who continue to militate for women's ordination or, or want the church to, to uh, conduct uh, gay marriage services. Right? Think about that for a minute. Stepping outside the judgment of the church on these matters puts you in really dangerous waters. So what you need to do is find out, if you hear about some apparition, some devotion, and the church has not spoken, then you use your own discernment. You consider it on its own merits. But if the church has spoken, I mean, it's up to you to find out what has the local bishop said. And if he said there's nothing to see here, then you need to move on. All right, that's no nonsense. We will be right back going to talk about... The, really the necessity for Catholics to have a rule of life and what that means when we come back with more No Nonsense Catholic. St. Benedict, patron saint of Christendom, was born in the year 480 to a noble family in Rome. Went to a town called Subiaco, some 40 miles out of Rome, and there lived in a cave on the side of a cliff for three years where uh, ravens would bring him food because he was trying to live a life closer to God in the chaos of the 5th century. This is after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. This is a time of, uh, you know, uh, what we call the Dark Ages. Well, Men began flocking to St. Benedict, and pretty soon he had a community of about 140 guys there in the cave around Sibiaca. They built themselves a monastery and spent their days in prayer, clearing the land, planting crops, uh, teaching school, feeding the poor. Uh, They had the motto, Ora et labora, pray and work. And then uh, eventually Benedict and his monks built a huge monastery on the top of that mountain, uh, Monte Cassino. Uh, it is called, uh, and that became home to thousands of monks who then would go out to um, re-evangelize Christendom. They went out to, to, to spread the, the faith back all over Europe. They were, they were called the teacher. The Benedictines were the teachers of Christendom. Uh, they almost uh, single-handedly saved Western civilization by uh, their way of life and by uh, you know uh, copying over the Holy Scriptures and the great classics of Latin and Greek literature and so on. Um, they, Of course, they're, today they're called the Benedictines. But the most important thing, the important thing about their way of life was what they called the Benedictine rule. They had a rule of life. Uh, my favorite saint, uh, as you know, Bernard of Clairvaux, was a Cistercian. And the Cistercians were uh, an offshoot of the Benedictine family. It was founded by Saint Robert de Molème in the year 1098. And Bernard was one of his, his, most, uh, his most famous monks. You know, he, he, Bernard of Clairvaux, again, a, a rich man from, a, from a, a family in Burgundy in France who was sent to the best schools. He had a terrific education. Uh, he studied theology. He studied Holy Scripture. After the death of his mother he became really uh, concerned about the temptations of the world and decided to enter this new community called the Cistercians. And Bernard of Clairvaux, he was so eloquent. I mean, he's a doctor of the church. They call him the mellifluous doctor, which means honey-tongued, because he was so eloquent, so persuasive. You know, when when he decided to enter the monastery, of course, he, he told people about it. And when he presented himself, uh, uh for entrance into the novitiate there were 30 other guys with him uh he, he had seven brothers all of whom eventually entered the cistercian uh uh monastery and and even his father okay this is a this is a persuasive guy um and and he was chosen not surprisingly to go uh to a, a place in france the the a grant of land that was known as the Valley of Absinthe, and not the intoxicating potable, but Absinthe in French means bitterness. Uh, it literally comes from a word that means wormwood. Okay, this was a swampy, boggy, uh, you know, uh, valley. And he and his companions cleared it. They built the monastery. They renamed it the Bright Valley, Clairvaux. And Bernard loved nothing more than, wanted nothing more than to remain there in his monastery with his brothers. Even it was naturally became the abbot uh, of Clairvaux, he was the natural leader, and uh, because of his great intelligence, because of his great eloquence, he was called upon uh, often to advise even kings and princes and bishops and he actually during the, during the uh, uh, a controversy where there was rival claimants to the papacy, he was the one that they called upon to uh determine which was the true pope. And so in a time before modern travel, before modern medicine, he had all sorts of health problems, but he persevered and he traveled because he was obedient, right, which is an important part of of monastic rules, and because he followed that, that Benedictine rule of the Cistercians. And he always asked himself every day, why have I come here? Why am I here? And, and because he never allowed himself to forget that his main duty in this world was to lead a holy life and save his soul. And a rule of life is the, you know, a, a traditionally effective way to do that. And that's why I believe that even lay people who live in the world, that's you and me, should have a rule of life. And I've composed one here. It's not definitive, but it sets out guidelines that correspond with my ideas about uh, um, the, the modern virtues of chivalry, embracing the virtues of chivalry in, in in a modern context. So, these are kind of the ten commandments of of uh, a Catholic uh, rule of lay Catholic rule of life. Number one, you start the day with prayer. It can be just you know a simple morning prayer, morning offering, uh, you know, accompanied by some common prayers, maybe the the Angelus. Uh, Maybe you'll pray the morning office of the divine uh, office, right? The liturgy of the hours. Uh, In any case, you have to be certain never to neglect morning prayer. Never start your day without that, okay? I count it as special blessing if you are also able to go to Holy Mass, even if only, you know, maybe one or two days a week outside of Sunday. In any case, you always start the day with prayer. Number two, offer all of your work and all of your duties to God. And in this way, you transform your whole day into a service to our Lord and King by doing everything for his greater honor and glory. Obviously, everything you do can be dedicated to God with the singular exception of sin. So if you're dedicating everything to God, that's going to help you to avoid sin. From time to time during the day, turn your thoughts to our Lord in the tabernacle, offer up some short ejaculatory prayers, renew the morning offering, you know, keep God's honor before you all the time. You know, Jesus, my God and my all. Uh, Jesus, all all for you. Ad mediorum Dei gloriam, right? And besides those occasional prayers, you should, number three, practice a daily regimen of prayer. Um, pray before and after meals. Uh, and, and try and pray thoughtfully, calling to mind that it's God who's provided your daily bread, right? It's also a congenial time to practice some self-denial, to eat moderately. Right, You pray before meals, you pray the grace before meals, and you pray a thanksgiving afterwards. Right? Um, for example, we give thee thanks, O Almighty God, who livest and reignest forever. Amen. May the souls of the faithful departed, through the mercy of God rest in peace. If you add that little prayer to the holy souls um, to your thanksgiving after meals, not only is that indulgenced, so there's an indulgence attached, but you do that every time you eat and three times a day you're regularly praying for the souls in purgatory. Um, and also practice uh, a daily devotion. It's the Holy Rosary, uh, the Angelus, like I mentioned. Uh, you know, at uh, morning, noon, and evening, uh, chaplet of Divine Mercy. These are among the most popular, and certainly not the only daily devotions that are available. Lots of chaplets, uh, uh, novenas, little offices, and that sort of thing. Uh, or or the, the, the official office, the Divine Office, the Liturgy of the Hours. It's the official. Daily liturgical prayer of the church. And even if you're doing it by yourself, you're joining the whole church in, in their liturgical prayer. That's a powerful thing. Or you can get one of those monthly kind of psalm-based devotionals, right? Like the Magnificat has a, a psalm for every day and a reading for every day plus the readings for Mass. Or there's a um, a traditionalist version called Benedictus, which has, you know, uh, a psalm for every day and a reading for every day and the readings and, and prayers of the extraordinary form, right? Also, um, devotions like that are available on your smartphone uh, through apps are available online, right so make it, take advantage of that also, if possible, make a holy hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament you know and Bishop Sheen said that a layperson could include the holy Mass as a part of that hour so you know you know uh, if you show up fifteen minutes early, you go to daily mass half hour long, you stay for another 15 after after, and you've made your holy hour as well as going to Holy Mass. It's very powerful. Uh, And if you can't, you can always set aside an hour. You can say at at, at 2 o'clock every day, I'm going to put myself spiritually before the tabernacle. And that doesn't mean you have to stop doing everything you're doing for that hour. Just to be aware, just to be thinking about our Lord in the tabernacle, about the the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and and adoring him, Uh, just have that in your thoughts. But in a specific hour, a specific time each day. All right? uh, if you're a husband and father, do not hesitate to bring your daily devotion to the family. Uh, as the spiritual head of the household. Really, the time that your wife and children spend with you leading the family rosary each evening, for example, will remain with them throughout their lives. Uh, it's well to remember that the father's example is the, you know according to all the polls, that's the number one most influential factor in whether children continue to practice their faith as adults, all right? So, number four, recreation, or what the uh, monastics call renewal. Uh, that should be wholesome and pleasing to God. It should be a renewal. How many people set aside Sunday to take care of all their errands? You know, it's like, no, stop and recharge your batteries. Recreation is good. It's even uh, some recreation is necessary, but it goes without saying that a serious Catholic should avoid any activity that cannot be wholeheartedly offered to God. Uh, and that's why you, you make a uh, renew your morning offering throughout the day. There's a little doggerel poem. That's a prayer that I, I learned. I don't even know. I don't remember where, but it's, Oh, Jesus, sweet Jesus. Oh, Jesus, divine, my life and my death unto thee. I resign every action of mine. Shall Thy patronage claim for whatever I do will be done in thy name. Amen. Right, Just a, a way to make sure that you're remembering and trying to live out that morning offering. Uh, Number five, practice Christian charity in your association with other people. Guard against improper speech. Uh, It's a a real foible of mine, which is I was mentioning to Richie during the break. That's why I write out my comments. You know, that's why I have notes here, because I don't want to say something uh, egregiously stupid uh, while I'm on the air. Uh, Be courteous, be kind uh, to everybody, but don't be overly familiar. Be careful in whom you place your confidence. Practice the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Number six: When you're contradicted, when you're upset, distressed, and that's going to happen, be patient, be resigned to God's will. Remember the example of Lazarus in the parable today, and 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 recall the proverb that the patient man is better than the valiant, and that he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh cities. Most especially. Contemplate our Lord's suffering for us and strive to follow his example, patience, humility, self-control, forgiveness. That's the imitation of Christ and the way of Christian perfection. Okay, I'm going to have to hit the rest of these. I just noticed on the clock on the wall here we have less than a minute left. So I want to take a moment now, say thank you so much for um, your continued patronage of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We desperately need your prayers. We... we, (laughs) Uh, also desperately need your your financial assistance. If you can afford uh, to help us out in that way, you can visit our website, vmpr.org. There's a donate button right on the uh, homepage and you can make a a one-time donation or you can uh, set up to become a monthly donor. And that's something that we have a great need for. That's what keeps the light bill paid. That's what keeps us in business. Also, coming up here, uh, if you're not on our email list, get on our emailing list. We have a big announcement to make uh, after the first of this month, and so that's coming up. And um, in the meantime, I just want to say once again, thank you for listening to this program. And from the bottom of my heart, may God richly bless you and your family.